You're listening to The 66, the podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. I am Andrew Kingsley. And I'm Drew Kaiser. And that is our very professional intro there to our podcast. Um, today we are in John chapter 20 and 21. We're going to finish this project that we've been working on now for a very long time. Um, we started all the way back, of course with the first chapter of John, and have moved through, and now we're going to finish it up. And uh, we're looking at the resurrection and the appearances that Jesus is going to make to his disciples after he has risen from the grave. So in our last episode, we covered 18 and 19, uh, the scene of Jesus' betrayal, and we called that the Passion Ministry of Christ. And today we're going to finish up the Passion Ministry of Christ in chapter 20, and then chapter 21, as we have named it, the Postscript of the Gospel of John, following our outline, uh, using that letter P just to make it easy uh, to stick in our heads. Yeah. Well, um, you know, my professor from uh, Free Dardeman University, who taught me the book of John, said, after man had done his worst on Friday, God did his best on Sunday. And I really think that applies to the transition between last week's episode and this week's episode on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, We open up in a strange place for a Jewish person reading this in the first century context with women being the first witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, In John chapter 20, verse 1, we return to Mary Magdalene, whom we haven't seen in a while as uh, we've been studying this book. But on the first day of the week, this is on Sunday, following the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now she did this because uh, the other accounts explain that they maybe had not finished preparing the body for burial. They had to stop their preparations due to the high Sabbath of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was not permissible for them to do that kind of thing, to come into contact with the a corpse would would have been to defile themselves, and so right. they were trying to honor the religious responsibilities. But as soon as she could, early in the morning, while it was still dark, she saw that the tomb had been the stone rather had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that'd be John, right. and said to them, "They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know." where they have laid him. Now, who they is, the antecedent of that pronoun, I don't know what was on her mind, who might have taken the Lord. But Peter went with the other disciple, Peter and John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been Jesus on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Now note that, that, you know, he believed at that point, at the point of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was... More specific, he believed in the resurrection. He didn't believe Mary's testimony. He didn't believe until he saw that. 
Or maybe it was more general than that. But something remarkable happened in John's heart at that point. John explains himself in verse 9 that as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So that's the first interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Really, there's no interaction yet. But the first realization that they have, that he is risen. John has settled the matter in his heart. I don't know that the others have come along yet. But then we read about a very touching personal encounter between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, beginning in verse 11. Mary stood outside weeping after the other disciples had went home, and she, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, now he has appeared, we know from this account, to Mary Magdalene and... Others are not mentioned here, but others are mentioned in other places. If you want to get a full detail, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John together. And then you also go over to 1 Corinthians 15 and read verses 5 through 8 there, where you get Paul's list, and you put all of those together, and you get maybe a good timeline of when Jesus appeared to different people. And right. You have to include Luke. Uh, 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus in there as well. Now I want to explore these resurrection accounts from the different Gospels in the next section. Yeah, I think, um, we, think. we could do that. Yeah, because there are some differences of detail. We won't call them contradictions as others do, but there are definitely some differences of detail there. Right. But before we do that, let's you know read on to a major appearance where he appears to the apostles. There, this is on the evening of that same day, so we're on Sunday. And it's the first day of the week, and the doors are locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then this next part is really perplexing. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It appears that he's bestowing some kind of authority on them in this breathing action. 
But then we know they don't really receive the Holy Spirit in His fullness until Acts chapter 2. So this has been read in a couple of ways. A, He's, um, you know, beginning to send the Spirit. But He told them in John 14 that He would have to go before the Spirit comes and He hasn't left yet. That's part of His message to them. Others read it as He's saying, you know, when... You know, when the Spirit comes, receive Him, pointing to the future. We really don't know, and we're going to be left in a mystery there with what happened there. But it's on the first day of the week. I think it's really interesting that all it took was Mary's report for them to change their worship habits. All of their lives, and for millennia, the Jews have worshipped on the last day of the week, on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Now it's the first day of the week. The evening of that day, and they're gathered together, and we assume they're in this upper room worshiping together. Um, a pattern is set up, which we'll talk to talk about in a minute when we get to Thomas, which is verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples tell him that they've seen the Lord, and he says, I will not believe this until I'm given the same opportunity that you have had to feel the nail prints in his hands and to feel the scar in his side. So verse 26 says, Eight days later, and you have to reckon time the way John did. John counted every day. So he would have counted both Sundays in his reckoning of time. So you're looking at Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the eight days. And so we're back in the room again, gathered together as a group on the first day of the week, I'm trying to point out here that a pattern has been set early on from the day of Jesus' resurrection of worshiping on the first day of the week, not the Sabbath day. And this is all because the first day of the week was the day on which Jesus rose from the grave. It was a recognition of that fact. And uh, the doors are locked again. Despite that fact, Jesus came and stood among them, which means his body had abilities that no normal human body had. Right. He was phasing through the wall or just appearing or transporting or something, and he said the same words that he said before. Do you think it was possible that maybe he was just like unlocking the doors? I don't know. I was thinking about no. that when I was reading this today. You know, it says even though the doors were locked, and I have no problem saying, you know, this resurrected body could, if it wanted to, just pop up in the middle of where they're talking. But I wonder if sometimes, you know, I'm not like just trying to think too dramatically in my head. I wonder if he was just like walking up to the door and, you know, the door unlocked itself. Just, I mean, because that's not even, that's not any more or less, you know, um, miraculous. miraculous than him just popping up in yeah. the middle of them. But I don't know. It's all speculation. I mean, I if that if that happened, really if that is that you're the first person I've ever heard suggest that mm -hmm. above. It doesn't say how he got in there. Yeah, it just seems that the doors are still closed. Yeah, I mean, it's all but he speculation. Doesn't, he doesn't say that. Yeah, I don't know. I but, probably uh, shouldn't have brought that up. <laughs> no, that's an interesting thought. He says to Thomas, "Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve." But believe, Thomas answered him, it seems like Thomas didn't even do that, but he says, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. This brings John to give us the theme of the book of John, which we've noted before. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That ties in with Jesus' words to Thomas and closes out John chapter 20. Now, we could have stopped here and added a new episode called chapter 21, the postscript. It is the postscript, but it's also another resurrection appearance, so it seems to fit nicely with the material that we've covered in chapter 20. So we want to continue and talk about uh, the third appearance of Jesus to the disciples as a group, which occurred in a different place. Uh, One of the other gospel writers has him uh, instructing them to go meet him in Galilee. And so uh, they are there, obedient to that request. They go to Galilee, and uh, he is revealing himself to them by the Sea of Tiberias, verse 1. Tiberias is the sea that we usually refer to as the Sea of Galilee. Right. Um, The disciples present on this occasion are listed in verse 2. It's not the entire group. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, and two others of the disciples were together. We don't know who they were, but Simon says, I'm going fishing. Some people say, this is Simon Peter going back to his old way of life. I don't read it that way. I mean, this is another thing, kind of like you were talking about how Jesus got in the room. Yeah. You know, it's speculation, but... I don't see any reason to read any kind of ill motives on Simon Peter's part. He has seen the Lord. By the way, this is not Peter's third appearance. This is the fourth appearance to Peter because there must have been at some point a private appearance to Simon Peter that is not recorded in detail but is mentioned by both Luke and Paul. Paul names it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mentioned that a while ago. So he appeared to Cephas or Peter first then to the apostles in the upper room the first time, then to the apostles with Thomas in the upper room the second time. So for Peter, this is appearance number four. It doesn't seem logical to me that he's saying, well, you know, Jesus isn't coming back. I'm going fishing. I think he's in Galilee waiting on Jesus, and he's a fisherman, and he's by a good lake. Um, He has his gear with him. Why not go fishing? So they're fishing. They're doing what they know how to do. And um, they uh, fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus appears to them standing on the shore, and none of them recognize him, which is something that happens a lot. It happened with Mary. Uh, this isn't in John, but it, happen, it happens in, with two disciples who are on the, road, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And then he performed his last miracle, verses 5 and 6. He says, Children... Do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And something about that sent a wave of recognition over John. So he leans over to Peter and he says, It is the Lord. And then this is... You know, last episode, I said my favorite interaction between Peter and John comes up in this episode. Peter puts on his outer garment and then throws himself into the sea. 
And the other disciples bring the fish in that they caught in the boat. And uh, I like John's little comment at the verse of, uh, at the end of verse eight. He says, "For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off." So what Peter did here was totally unnecessary. First of all, John was the guy who recognized Jesus. Peter had no idea who it was, even though they were waiting for him and should have been expecting him. And John, you know, seeing that Peter was clueless, leans over after this miracle happens and says, "You know, it's Jesus, right?" Mm-hmm. And Peter, who's stripped for work, you know, he's working without his... Wanting to impress Jesus with his modesty, I guess, puts on all of his clothes and then jumps into the sea, swims up there, and the rest of them bring the fish in. And they're only 100 yards off the shore. I mean, he could have waited and helped them get got into shore. It just It's kind of humorous to me. Peter, of course, hauls the net into shore. I can see him dragging that net over. And they count the fish, and there's 153 fish. And although they had so many, John tells us the net wasn't torn. They have breakfast with Jesus on the beach there. And uh, they are glad to be reunited with him, I'm sure. But it's after breakfast that the most important thing happens. Jesus and Peter get some face time. Mm -hmm. And this is in verses 15 and following. And Jesus confronts Peter in three ways. Now, the first thing that he does is he gives him a reminder. Look at verse 15. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there are a lot of ways to read that. Some people think he's asking, do you love me more than the tackle and the boats and the fishing? But he was probably saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? Because Peter had bragged in Matthew 10.37, or um, not Matthew 10.37, in and uh, where was that? Matthew twenty six thirty three. Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You know, he'd been claiming that he did love Jesus more than the others. And so now Jesus is giving him a subtle reminder of what he used to be. Do you love me more than these? He's working on his pride and trying to cultivate humility. And then the second way that he confronts him is with a name. Notice he's calling him Simon, son of John. Now, it was Jesus who gave him this name, Peter. Matthew 16, John 1, he gives him this name, Peter, or Cephas, which means stone, indicating that Peter was to be a stabilizing force in Jesus' movement. But now he's calling him his old name, the name of the fisherman, the name of the son of John. He's calling him Simon, indicating, again, very subtly, that Peter had not lived up to his name. But the most striking thing is that he confronts him with questions. Three times he asks him, Do you love me? And in the original, most people know this, in the original, the exchange between Peter and the Lord carries a subtle nuance in the Greek language important to the meaning, I think. He's switching between two Greek verbs, agapao, which is the word for the highest love that you can have Christian love, Mm -hmm. and phileo, which is a warm, affectionate love of a friend. And so twice Jesus asked Peter, do you agapao me? Do you love me with the highest love? And Peter's unable to admit that, so he condescends down to the lower form of love, a warm, affectionate love. Lord, you know that I phileo you. And the third time Jesus goes down to that love. Do you phileo me? And it breaks Peter's heart. 
John says he was grieved and he said, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. And I want to read, my translation that I usually read from the ESV does not show those differences. So I want to read from Philip's translation where I think he does a good job showing the nuances of the Greek words. This is verses 15 through 17 in Philip's translation. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others? Yes, Lord, he replied, you know that I am your friend. Then feed my lambs, returned Jesus. Then he said for a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, returned Peter, you know that I am your friend. Then care for my sheep. Then for the third time, Jesus spoke to him and said, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Peter was deeply hurt because Jesus' third question to him was, Are you my friend? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I am your friend. Then feed my sheep. I think in addition to all of that, it's interesting that Jesus asks him three times. Mm-hmm. And we all know what that's about. You know, he, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And for every denial, an affirmation of love was required, which cut Peter's pride to the quick. But it gives Peter work to do. He doesn't just tell him there's no hope for you, but he says to him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He's telling him you can still be that stone, you can still be that leader. That's Peter and Jesus. The book ends, though, with Jesus and John. Before he ends the account, John seems to want to set the record straight, which really gives this the feel of an epilogue. Um, Evidently, a rumor had begun to circulate about him that he was going to remain on earth until the Lord came. I mean, you know, it might have been a joke, it might have been taken seriously, but John's a really old man as he's writing this. He's almost 100 years old, probably. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter sees this disciple whom Jesus loved. He sees John, and he asks, Lord, who is it? that is going to betray you. Oh, wait. No, I got mixed up. He's the, John is the one who asked who is it going to betray you. Boy, I got yeah, right. slammed on that one. <laughs> and when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? That's what I'm trying to get to. Peter is yeah. asking about John. And Jesus said, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so John says the saying spread abroad about among the brothers that this disciple is not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Sounds like what we do a lot on the 66 podcast, trying to point out what he did say and what he didn't say. Like we were talking about the kiss and how Luke has Jesus stop Judas while he's kissing and saying, yeah. you know, I forget what he says to him. Will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Yeah, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? But Luke doesn't say that he never kissed him after that. He just adds that comment. And, you know, John is pointing out that Jesus never said, John is going to live until Jesus returns. He just said, what is that to you? If that happens, what does it matter to you? This is the disciple, John says, who is bearing witness about these things and has written this testimony and um, we know that his testimony is true. Now, for some reason, I skipped a really important part, the reason why Peter asked that question. 
Because Jesus said after he told him to feed his sheep, he says in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you want to go. And John says this, he said, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. You know, John knew by this time that Peter was dead. He wrote this after Peter's death. And according to tradition, Peter was crucified as Jesus was crucified. In other words, his hands were stretched out. And as the tradition goes, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down. Right. Out of honor for Jesus, not being worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. Right. But John, you know, concludes this saying, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And that ends the book of John. Okay, so again, kind of in a similar uh, vein to the last episode we did, I want to look at reconciling. Well, I guess reconciling is not the right word because reconciling would imply there's a problem. I want to look at how we line up the synoptic gospels and John in their resurrection accounts because there are some differences in the books that we have and the gospels that we have. And I'm very careful to use the word difference rather than contradiction, like you pointed out um, in the first section. But there are some differences. Um, You'll see in Matthew, there's a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord appears like lightning and clothing as white as snow. He comes down from heaven, he rolls back the stone, and he sits on it. Uh, Well, in Mark, when Mary gets there, the stone's already rolled away. In Luke, she finds the stone rolled away. In John, she finds the stone rolled away. But in Matthew, you have the angel coming down, and I'm not writing in my notes whether she was there when that happened. Um, so let's check on that real quick. We might just need to read that one here. in Matthew more closely. Re- just read it. Okay, so the apparent the the alleged contradiction is that when Mary arrived in Matthew, the stone had not yet been rolled away, but in right. the other accounts, the stone was already rolled away. Now read it. Uh, after the, This is Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, if you're wanting to follow along. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Now where does it say that verses 2 through 4 happened in front of Mary and the other women? It It, doesn't say that. Right. It just says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, which could have... I mean, I agree that Matthew could have been saying that that happened right there in front of Mary, but he also could have been flashing back to why the stone had already been rolled away Yeah, and telling us what the others don't. The process, guards are there, you know, uh, you wouldn't expect her to, you know, it just... It seems to me that there's a simple explanation here that Matthew is not writing chronologically about you know what happened, but we have a little flashback here with verse two. It ends at verse five, and then I mean it ends at verse four, and then with verse five we get back to real time. Right. And there's there's nothing wrong with that, and all you need to defeat an alleged biblical contradiction is is just an explanation. You don't have to know for real what the answer is, as long as there's a rational explanation as to why it reads the way that it reads, then you've settled that it's not a contradiction, it's a difference in detail. Right, and there's a lot of those little differences in detail that I don't know necessarily want to bring all of those up. I think that one serves as a really good example of the rest of them. Uh, but I don't want people to... That's you know, probably the most difficult one, though, right? Yeah, right. Because the other one that I'm aware of that, that has been brought up a lot of times is the timing. Like, uh, we're in Matthew right now. It says at the dawn of the first day of the week. And then John said what? I, I don't uh, have, it's very hard to early. John says it was still dark. Right. Well, early the others say early dark. in the morning. You know, so I'm, I think they could agree with John or Matthew there. Yeah, they're all early, first day of the week, after Sabbath, dawn, very early, still dark. I've got all the... Those are the exact words used, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, so I mean, d- is it really a contradiction to say that it's dark at dawn? Oh, no. Definitely not. So I don't think that one... What's the problem? I don't think that one carries any weight. But, I people, think, but people will say, oh, yeah. dawn is light, John says dark, they didn't know, you know, they're making all this up. Mm-hmm. I definitely think the problem that I would sympathize with people bringing up more is this in Matthew, but I think your answer for it is perfect. I think it's just the, you know, they got there, stones roll back, um, but Matthew just gives you the interjection of they got there, and, you know, I guess maybe to be plainer um, for people who could say before they had gotten there, there was a great earthquake, Angel Lord came down, the guards came, but, I mean, the way it reads, it does look like it happens just right in there because then you have verse 5, that connecting, uh, you have the conjunction there. But the angel said to mm-hmm. the women, don't be afraid. It's like the guards are afraid, but he says to the women, don't be afraid. Right. So, I mean, and there's some differences in what um, what the angel says to Mary uh, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think what we and, have and here... And the number of angels. Right. You but know, this... here's, to me, the best way this has been described to me uh, by a professor of mine at school. 
he said, well, what he did was we had we had a lockdown occur at Faulkner. Um, something happened, and they locked the campus down. And he had every one of us in the class write like a 400-word description of what happened. And so we all wrote a paragraph of the lockdown that had occurred. And then he put them all up on the on the uh, screen in front of the class. And he read them all. And they were all completely different. You know, mm-hmm. way different details. Uh, the time of day was even a little bit different. Or this and that and the other. But they all described the exact same occurrence. And they were all in total unison or in total agreement with one another. And, you know, I did. we had a similar exercise here. And we did a class on... Uh, hermeneutics and we brought this up and we were talking about how to take the gospels as four different accounts of the same thing um, and it might have been a little goofy but we watched a clip from Star Wars uh, and we had everybody write down what had happened just in like the two and a half minutes of the video and we paused the video wrote up on the board you know I, j- I just put up on the board what happened and then I put bullet points and asked people in the room what had happened Uh, starting with the beginning and moving through. Everybody said different things about it, but they all ended up, when you added them all together, you got the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's an easy solution to a problem that so many people have to say, well, all these are not the same. And like you mentioned in our previous episode about the fact that these are different and they're not the exact same, because they're the exact same, you would probably have some suspicions raised that there was some conspiracy going on between the writers of the gospel. Right. The legal word for that is collusion. Right. And, you know, interrogators are (laughs) very suspicious of, you know, suspects whose stories are straight. Right. Stories are, in other words, exactly the same in detail. These are four different men, four different perspectives, so you have four different gospel accounts. Yeah. Of the resurrection. There's no real contradiction in there. Right. Well, let me ask you this question. What's going on with Jesus breathing on them and telling them to receive well, the Holy Spirit? I already answered that. We talked about that a little bit. But I think something interesting to point out, whether or not we're going to... I mean, I, I think you covered how we can answer that Holy Spirit question in the first section. But it's interesting to me, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you... We saw a similar language in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, uh, saying pretty much the same thing, that he wanted to send them just as the Father had sent him. And then what he says immediately after that, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. When Jesus was here, he definitely had the power to forgive sins or to withhold forgiveness. And we see him exercising that power uh, several times with people saying to them, your sins are forgiven. And now here, it seems that he's giving what he says as much. He gives the apostles the same ability. If you forgive somebody their sins, their sins are going to be forgiven. If you don't, they're not. And so I think maybe the spirit, I'm thinking the uh, connection between Jesus and the apostles might be a little more analogous to the connection between the Father and Jesus in terms Mm -hmm. of being sent. And that's when you consider the term for apostle makes perfect sense because apostle just means one who is sent. The grammar behind Matthew sixteen nineteen helps make your point 
you know, in our translations, it reads, whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind, or whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That could be forgiveness. Right. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. But uh, the the more accurate translation is, whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. So the difference there is it's not that they are setting up new laws that heaven recognizes, but rather the word has already been settled in heaven and they being inspired no perform way. what it is. Right. So and they're so, not going to forgive anyone that would not be right. forgiven by God, but since Peter says you're yeah, forgiven. Yeah, God's not changing because Peter decided to forgive somebody. Right. And God's like, oh, well, we got to forgive him now because Jesus breathed on him. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. It's, it's yeah. it, because Jesus breathed on him and sending the Spirit, and there's a question about when that, you know, if that was a process that began at that point or if Jesus is, you know, reinforcing what he had already taught them in John 14 through 16. And again, let's let's make this point that it's just the apostles that he's talking with here. Right. And not us today, but, you know, it's another question for another time. And it's interesting to me, this just came into my head, so I hesitate to bring it up, but Matthias isn't around yet. No. And he's around in Acts 2. Yeah. So, you know, we... The, the real power came, as Jesus tells them, after this event, right before his ascension, as recorded in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, the power is going to come on the day of Pentecost in the right. city of Jerusalem. They're not, they're not in Jerusalem. Well, yeah, they are here. But uh, anyway, and this, I also think the breathing has something to do with the spirit because in the Greek, breathe and spirit come from pneuma. Right. Although I looked similar up the word to, for breathe, it, the verb is not real similar. Yeah. Um, but There's a close connection between breath, wind, spirit, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the connotation like, is there. Right. And it's meant, you know, it's intentional, that the breathing. He, he, he probably was just speaking, but John chose this word breathe as a metaphorical way of expressing his speaking. Right. Because we're talking about the spirit here and you see the same analogies made in john 3 yeah and the wind you know blowing and we talk about and all uh, that second timothy three sixteen. all scriptures breathed out by god first timothy second timothy second timothy yeah uh, where all scriptures breathed out by god kind of that same imagery there of what it means to breathe out that kind of inspiration that spirit certainly the apostles had that uh we're reading one of their inspired letters here. Here's my last thing to bring up uh, that we've already covered again, but there's a little more into this that's good for this section. John's, this weird little thing about John, you know, that Jesus says, what is it to you if he remains until I come? You know, and so John says, We understand Peter, right? Because Peter just got some bad news. Yeah. And even though John has to give us the explanation, there's something between Jesus and Peter that indicates to Peter that Jesus is talking about a not not a very comfortable death for Peter. Right. Stretch your your hands will be stretched out and take you where you do not want to go. So we understand why Peter, in desperation, looks over at John and says, "Well, what about him? Yeah. What about him? What's going to happen to him?" And pretty much Jesus' answer 
it was misconstrued by many, and even by the time John writes this. Yeah, so think, this rumor started between the writing, you know, of the first gospel accounts and John's gospel account. That John's so, never going to die. Yeah. Yeah, because of this statement. Uh, and in fact, it, I mean, it continued on even for uh, some 300 years. Um, I've got a paragraph here from um, Guy N. Woods about this, about the traditions that uh, were rumored about John's death. Um, 300 years after John penned these words, there was a tradition that the ground over the apostle's grave rose and fell as he breathed. So, not only are there some people that think there's an immortal John running around, uh, there were some not that... Not running around. Yeah, there were some that thought, case. he's dead, he's in his grave, buried underground, but somehow he's getting oxygen and his body hasn't mm-hmm. decayed and the ground is rising and falling. He's just fine with sleeping underground. I mean... That's a ghost story. Yeah, you know, ridiculous things. Uh, but it's actually a tradition. Found its way into a commentary. Significant mm-hmm. enough to be mentioned in a commentary. But, really... I mean, you can tell me what you think about this, but... It seems to me that Jesus is saying, even if he never dies, why do you care? Because this is... To me, this is Jesus saying, look... I, don't worry about John. You follow me. Whatever happens to John is not a part of your business following me. Mm-hmm. Even, even if he remains until I come again, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's exactly what yeah, he says. That's the point. Hey, I, it occurred to me that a lot of people have questions about Mary Magdalene here. Um, okay. You know, a couple... There's probably three things. Um... First of all, why didn't she recognize this man that she knew so well? And, you know, we it's a question we don't have the answer to. We know that the disciples in John 21 didn't recognize him at first. Nor did they at the end of Luke on the road to Emmaus. There was that example, and then we have here. So mm-hmm. it's possible that in this form Jesus took, this uh, new resurrected state, he was able to mask his identity. Why he would want to do that, we don't know. Right. Another possibility is it was very early in the morning. It was dark, and she wasn't expecting to see him there. She was convinced that somebody had taken his body away. But John had believed, you know. Um, so John, by this point, had already bought into the resurrection. I take that to mean that he believed. But Mary, maybe she didn't believe yet. She's still on this grave robber theory. Yeah. The other less likely scenario that I've heard is that her eyes were so filled with tears that she couldn't see him. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think it's likely. I mean, it's early. John puts that re, that detail in there for a reason. Early in the morning when it's still dark. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's. It might have been very dark. Yeah. If I and who going, would be out there but the gardener at that time of the day? Right. She might not have been able to see his face. She sees, like, the outline of his body. I mean... He wasn't wearing the burial clothes. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me, one way or the other, what was going on. Where did he get the clothes? Yeah, true. Maybe the gardener had a little shed there. He, he, Because the burial clothes were set aside. Yeah. They were in there. So... There's no telling. But, I mean, it's definitely possible that she just didn't recognize him. 
But I'm on loved, the road to Emmaus, they could have just not reckoned maybe he's got a hood over his head. Or Now that had to, I, the Emmaus account had to have been miraculous. You think so? Because when he broke bread, then they recognized him. I mean, the, the timing, and the timing here is amazing too. I just, yeah. I love the fact that she recognized him when he said her name. Yeah. That indicates a, a relationship. Now, the next question people have is, why didn't he want her to cling to him? Yeah. You know, I've heard all kinds of theories on that. The one... Here's the theory that I hear a lot of times that I don't I don't agree with. There was something about his body that made him not permit her to touch him. Do yeah, not Thomas cling touches to me. Him later. Yeah, that exi- that's the problem with that. Yeah. And the disciples are touching him and eating breakfast with him, and you know there there are a lot of occasions. You know, in Luke he says, "Touch me, I'm I am a uh, flesh and blood." Touch me, for I'm flesh and no, flesh and bones. Yeah, flesh and bones. Um, so he, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here? He's pressed for time. That's, I mean, it's not an exciting explanation, but he's saying, "Don't cling to me. I've still got things to do. I've not yet ascended to the Father. I go to go to my brothers and say to them that I am ascending to my Father and to my God and your God." And there's nothing in there that says she didn't touch him either. He just says, don't right. cling to well, me. Well, she obviously was touching him. She could have Or he buried, would have said, don't cling to me. Yeah, I mean, she could have just embraced him. Get, they could have been hugging. And then, he's like, get okay. away from me. <laughs> yeah. no. All right, don't cling to me. Got to get out of here. Got things to do. Yeah. I mean, now, this other thing that is fascinating to me is that he said, he's been dead. And you wonder, where has he been? And he says, I have not yet ascended to my father. Yeah. Peter tells us in Acts 2 that he went to Hades. Mm-hmm. Not hell. He says Hades. King James unfortunately translates that hell. He had said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, Today you will be with me in paradise. But here he says, I'm not yet ascended to my Father who is in heaven. So he mm-hmm. didn't go to hell. He didn't go to heaven. He went to paradise. He went to Hades. So, you know, he went to a pleasant, comforting side of Hades that Mm -hmm. I liken to where Lazarus was in Luke 16. Right. And it comforted at Abraham's side, where the dead can expect to go immediately after their death as they wait Judgment Day. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot packed into that little scene with Mary Magdalene to think about. Oh, yeah. We could talk about it more, but... You know, we're running out of time here. So yep. let's let's take a break and, and come back and finish up the book of John with some practical applications. Bring the book of John to a close, uh, this wonderful masterpiece of inspiration. What can we take with us? Uh, This is going to be an application that is a little heavier maybe than some of them, but very, very important. And it has to do, all of our applications have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what John chapters 20 and 21 are about. 
Now, the first lesson here is that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the, the grave. He rose from the dead. This is a historical event. And the difference between Christianity and all other religions is that while all other religions give you advice, Christianity gives you good news. News has to do with events. Mm-hmm. It says, Jesus died, he was buried, and he raised the third day, and he lives in heaven now at the right hand of God. And the proof for that is, according to John, the eyewitnesses that he is listing for us, such as Peter, John, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Some people want to, you know, discredit these and say, well, people back there were very gullible. But that that is just simply not the case. That's an example of what I think C.S. Lewis called snobbery towards um, people in the past. In yeah. fact, you know, with the theories and philosophies that we were able to look at that they believed in those days, they were less likely to believe in a resurrection than we are today. We're actually more gullible than they were in those days because Stoic and Epicurean uh, philosophy did not believe in afterlife, not in a personal afterlife. Yeah. Uh, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection from the dead, but not, you know, one man first followed by the rest of everybody later on. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife or resurrection. We know that. Mm-hmm. So these were not gullible people that tended to believe in people rising from the dead. They were skeptics, and uh, yet Christian religion was uh, conceived at the first of the first century and uh, now has spread to billions of people. Right. And a lot of it had to do with other evidences, but the one that we're looking at here are the eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of eyewitnesses. John, uh, P- having trouble here. Paul mentions over 500 of them in 1 Corinthians 15. Right. And Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, made a compelling argument. He said, if you were to call each one of these witnesses to a court of law to be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, and you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. He said, after listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? So, we accept eyewitness testimony in the courts of law today. Why wouldn't we accept it coming from them? These were, by the way, credible eyewitnesses. They're not, you know, out of the mental asylum. They were not delusional people. They were skeptical people. They were not a part of a cult. And they saw Jesus and spread the word. And it spread mm-hmm. like wildfire because it really did happen. Okay, that so that's the first the first one. You wanna bring us to the second one? Yeah. I think it's what that resurrection means for us, right? Yeah. Is that it's a historical event. Okay, so now what? The tomb is empty, so now what? Uh well here is what if you go to first Corinthians fifteen, you'll see Paul talking about the resurrection of Christ, uh the resurrection of the dead as a whole, and about our bodies Uh, what they'll be like when they are resurrected. Uh, The resurrection of Christ is central to the message. I mean, if you take the resurrection out, everything else falls apart. If that tomb is not empty, then we're wasting our time. And the same is true of all Christians who have ever lived. And Paul says as much. 
Look in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. So if there's no resurrection, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're to be pitied above everybody else because we thought we had hope, but we really don't. Yeah. The gospel message, the whole thing falls apart if there is no resurrection. Right. Don't take this as a book where you can just get some good moral ethics about how to live and you know get the golden rule and the Sermon on the Mount and those things. This is a story that you have to believe happened right. in order to be a Christian. Right. Otherwise, there's no hope in it. That's no exactly reason right. to it. And this makes, you know, it, it really, to me, this makes life, we sing a song all the time, you know, life is worth a living just because he lives. But if you take Christ and the resurrection out of your life, then your life really has no meaning. And it is such a sad, pitiful thing, you know, if there is no Christ. Because you're just here by sheer chance. Uh, you're here for a little while, and then you die, and then you're just terminated. You go into oblivion, and there's nothing there. It, I mean, it's, it, it is no, it's, no, it's no wonder that so many people that don't have faith just go crazy. Mm-hmm. They literally go crazy, commit suicide, because there is no hope. There is zero hope aside from Christ. Christ is the only thing that offers anybody any kind of meaning in life. And whenever somebody asks me, why is Christianity superior to any other religion? I think now that we're more open to what's out there in the world, a lot of young people are seeing other religions and wondering, well, why, why are we Christians? You know, mm-hmm. Are we Christians just because that's American culture? And if I were a Hindu, if I were an Indian, would I be Hindu? Or if I were yeah. in China, would I be Buddhist? Uh, you know, it's a good question to ask, and the and the best answer that you can give is Jesus Christ. The best answer and the only answer, really, you can give for why Christianity is true and all other religions are not is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can prove that that happened then that changes everything because dead people normally don't rise and talk to people and allow them to feel the scars in their hands and feet. Right. But if you can't, then there's no hope. So our hope is based on this part of Scripture that we're talking about today. It's a very, very important practical part of, of our lives. The fact that nobody has been able to produce the body of Jesus is really... The, to me, it's the single most important piece of Christian evidences that we have. And, you know, there's all this talk about Christian evidences and this and that and the other. But the thing that puts it to rest for me is the fact that look at who was trying to get rid of the Christian movement when it was going on. Mm-hmm. The powers that be. Uh, Rome, the Jews, they're trying to squash this whole thing. So, if the body of Jesus had been taken somewhere, or if somebody had it, somebody was trying to hide it, they would have found it. And After they, they had set a guard and a seal on the tomb. Right. In Jerusalem, in the tomb of a prominent citizen. Yeah. A very public, controversial execution. You're telling me 
that they couldn't find that body because it had been stolen by his disciples. Yeah, some guys that were it's fishermen from not, Galilee. Not a plausible story. Yeah, fishermen from Galilee are not going to go in like, I mean, I'm trying to, it's not like a heist movie or something where these guys that are fishermen are going to come in Pull an Ocean's somehow, Eleven or something. Yeah, well, I was going to say, they're not Danny Ocean. You know, they're yeah. not going to come in and move the stone back, kill the guards, get the body out of there, and then be able to hide the body somewhere. And convince everybody. Right. And then they're not going to die for it later. Because what would they have to gain from dying for a lie? You know, they would have been, okay, well, I guess he wasn't the Messiah, and moved on. Right. If he had never come out of that grave. The only reason that those apostles ended up doing what they did was because that tomb was empty and because Jesus appeared to them. If he had died and had stayed dead in that grave, there would have been nothing else after chapter 19. Right. They could have gone back to Galilee, gone fishing. It's the Blaise Pascal argument. I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. Yeah. These guys died. As, you know, Peter is facing that, you know... Jesus tells him, this is what this happened to me, it's going to happen to you. Right. Let me get real quickly to another practical application. People always want to know, you know, what is the resurrection body like? And you were reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. You stopped at verse 19. Let's read verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. First fruits were grains that had first come in in the harvest. And they were looked upon, they were they were offered up to God as thanksgiving for the harvest. And they were looked upon as a sign of more of the same to come. So the first fruits of a wheat crop symbolized more wheat. Mm-hmm. First fruits of any other kind of grain symbolized the same kind of grain coming afterwards. Mm-hmm. So if Jesus' resurrected body was the first fruits of the rest of the resurrected bodies, then we can draw from that, deduce from that, that whatever Jesus' body was like in the resurrection, our body will be like that as well. Right. Now, you know, some people are uncomfortable with that because of some of the things that we've seen today, like Thomas feeling scars in that body. And we know that we're taught that, you know, in the in the book of Revelation, for example, there'll be no pain, no death, no disease... Scars seem to indicate that kind of thing. Uh, You know, he says in Luke 24, Touch me, I'm flesh and bones. And, you know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says in this chapter later on that the body that is to be will be a spiritual body. But he doesn't eliminate in in that phrase, I don't think, physicality. I think what he's eliminating is biological processes. A spiritual body is a body animated by the Spirit. And I believe when you're looking at Jesus' body phasing through walls or, as you put it, manipulating locks, whatever happened there, um, changing his appearances, um, covering ground in you know unbelievable ways, uh, doing things like that, um, you know, you're seeing a body that's very different from the body you and I have right now. It doesn't adhere to the laws that our bodies have to adhere to. No. And in Acts chapter 1, he's in that body when he ascends into heaven. Right. And the angels that are there tell the disciples, you see how he's going up? He'll come down in that same manner. 
which is yeah. to say, he's going up in a body, he's coming back down in a body. First Timothy two five tells us he's in that body now. He's the man, Christ Jesus. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot more to be said, but you look at that, that's comforting to some people because he had the appearance of the person that he was. He still appeared to be Jesus. Mary recognized him and called him Rabbanai. Um, right. You know, he was a person still. He had personality. Mm-hmm. He had identity. He had consciousness. And these are all things people are afraid of losing at death. And the idea here of Jesus as first fruits in his resurrection is the idea that we'll maintain those things that are special to us, meaning identity, personality, consciousness, relationships, etc. So right. uh, that's all the time that we have for John. And man, it has been a, a trip. We have really enjoyed discussing this book. A favorite of mine. Oh, I think, yeah. Andrew, you would say the same thing. It's one of your favorites. Definitely. A book that uh, I think you could hand to somebody unfamiliar with Christianity and say, hey, start with this one. and um, You'd have a lot to study with them. Yes, yeah. And um, you could use this podcast as you studied with them. We're going to take a completely, that's exactly right, we're going to take a completely different uh, approach now for something completely different um, when we start our next project. You know, it's always trying to come up with what we're going to do next is always kind of a chore, but we're very excited to get into something completely different. We're going, Having done so much in the New Testament, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to study the book of Jeremiah. So I hope that uh, you'll join us in that, not just to get some refreshing uh, practical applications, but also maybe to delve into a book you probably, if you're like most of us, haven't studied a whole lot in the past. We're going to cover it in 12 episodes. It's 55 chapters, 12 episodes is what we're limiting ourselves to. And um, I think it's going to be a great experience for us as well as you. If you want to contact us, you can email Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. You can get me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Look us up on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, or follow us on Twitter at the66podcast. And uh, we always appreciate hearing from you. Really appreciate you listening. Join us next time as we get into the book of Jeremiah. We'll see you then.